Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in finding out the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 23 entitled King vs King 2023. For estate planners engaged in the activity of writing wills and not engaged in probate or estate administration, I've always held the opinion that intestacy is a topic that is not terribly relevant to the day-to-day activities that we have to deal with. Yes, it's good to know the rules of intestacy and yes, it's the default position if a will was to fail for whatever reason. But the clients that you sit with are, of course, making wills that should remove that concern for them and for you. However, you'll get clients who might expect you to know about this. And if, say, they have had a family member that has recently passed away, they might expect you to have some appreciation and know the rules of intestacy and what they are likely to face. And because it sits on the periphery of what it is that we do, it does warrant a fair understanding. Plus, whenever you get a client that is sat on the fence about making a will, a few cautionary tales or a sound understanding of intestacy could be very helpful. This case that we will pick up on in this episode is a great example of how intestacy can be problematic and why having a will can save a great deal of money, time and upset once the person passes away. The other interesting factor that this case highlights is that the problems don't always sit where you might expect them to in the distribution of the estate. The centre of this case was actually about who was going to administer the estate, thus showing that The choice of executor can also be a point that is worthy of more attention when taking instructions. At the time of recording this, it's a very recent case, 15th of November 2023 in fact, the deceased was Eric Sidney King, who died intestate in April 2021. Letters of administration were issued to one of the deceased's sons, Stephen King, in August of 2023. This has been appealed by one of the deceased's other sons, Philip King, to administer the estate. So the first question here is, who is entitled to apply to administer the estate? The Non-Contentious Probate Rules, 1987, Rule 22, sets out the order of priority for a grant. It states that it starts with A, the surviving spouse or civil partner, and then B, the children of the deceased, and the issue of any deceased child who died before the deceased. Eric King was divorced, and therefore the entitlement belongs equally to his children and any issue of a deceased child. Where more than one person of the same degree applies, the court has discretion over which of those individuals it should appoint, being either a single member of the class or any number of them up to the statutory maximum of four. Also of interest from the non-contentious probate rules, it says a grant of administration may be made to any person entitled without notice to other persons entitled in the same degree. 
A list of factors that have been taken into account in such disputes is to be found in Tristam and Coote's probate practice, currently at the 32nd edition. The court in this case identified the relevant factors as being number one, objections based upon characteristics of an applicant which render them unsuitable to act as an administrator. These may include dishonesty, bankruptcy, insolvency or ill health which prevents them from being able to carry out the required tasks. 2. Objections based upon a conflict of interest between the applicant and the estate. Conflicts may arise in a number of different ways, as an example being Bud versus Silver from 1813, where a court refused a grant in circumstances where the deceased estate had a claim against the son of the applicant. There, the court was concerned that the applicant might not assert the estate's claim against his son sufficiently strongly. And number three, there is a general practice that, in cases of dispute, the view of those entitled to the larger share of the estate is preferred. However, the court isn't bound to follow that practice. In this instance, the court acknowledged that there will be situations which clearly demonstrate one applicant as being unsuitable, but if that is not the case, then the choice is going to be more difficult. So, what to do? The choices came down to either the court using its discretion to choose one of the two applicants, or for the court to appoint an independent administrator. For the latter solution, the rules state that there must be special circumstances, and also that it must be necessary or expedient for the court to appoint an independent administrator. Of course, in any situation like this, the main focus of the court is to arrive at a solution which is in the best interest of the beneficiaries. Specifically, quote, the estate should be administered properly and in accordance with the law, but equally it should be administered efficiently and at a reasonable cost that is proportionate to the size of the estate. Administration by an independent professional administrator will inevitably prove more expensive than administration by a lay administrator, and this will need to be taken into account. Not every dispute between rival applicants requires the court to appoint an independent administrator. Equally though, the imposition by the court of an independent professional to administer the estate may remove a source of contention and enable a more objective approach to be brought to bear. What the court should not do is to appoint two rival applicants to act jointly. Unless it's clear that they are going to be able to act together, this will prevent the effective administration of the estate. End of quote. So, Moving on to the specifics of this case. Whilst Stephen and Philip are both the sons of the deceased and are therefore entitled to apply for a grant, the deceased also had another son, also named Eric, who passed away in 2008. Eric had three children that are themselves now adults and would therefore also be entitled to apply for a grant. It also came to light that there may be three other children of the deceased that neither Stephen nor Philip had any prior knowledge of. Whether they have a claim on the estate was not a matter to be addressed in this case and the court chose to ignore their claims for a grant at this time. So what happened then? From May 
2022 through to July 2023, there were a series of correspondences between the District Probate Registry, Stephen and Philip. Stephen asserted that Eric's three children supported his application for a grant. And given that the application had been received first, and it appeared he was supported by the majority of beneficiaries, the grant was issued to Stephen on the 7th of August 2023. On learning that the grant had been issued, Philip immediately sought to appeal the registrar's decision. The grounds for Philip's appeal were, in short, that Stephen is dishonest and that he has a conflict of interest arising from a number of matters and also that he has misconducted himself such that he is not suitable for appointment as an administrator. The grounds of that misconduct were as follows that in the IHT 400 form, the value placed on the property owned by the deceased had been inflated. There had been a written valuation of £280,000, but the figure given in the form from Stephen had been £320,000. The judge, looking at the evidence, held that he considered Stephen's explanation of why he had provided a higher figure to not be particularly convincing. Next, that Stephen had gained entry to the deceased property and had been living there rent-free. In Stephen's statement in January, he had stated that he had no intention of living in the property. However, in his oral evidence, Stephen accepted that he had been living in the property. However, Stephen had placed the property on the market for sale, indicating that he did not intend to live there permanently. There is then a dispute about the location of Philip's old school reports. Philip complained that Stephen was not releasing those papers to him and that when pressed, Stephen had joked that he had had a bonfire. The judge believed that this was not in fact a joke on Stephen's part, but was indicative of the difficult relationship between the two brothers. Amongst other allegations are that Stephen had stolen cash from the deceased, has made deeply offensive comments and various other complaints. Meanwhile, Stephen had argued that Philip has been estranged from the deceased for many years and that he had demanded Stephen to do exactly as he was told and that he had been the one who had acted unreasonably throughout the process, including sending several emails a day in relation to the administration of the estate. So the judge had three choices. Appoint Stephen, appoint Philip, or appoint an independent professional. The judge considered that he should not appoint Philip. He said, quote, I do not consider that he is capable of undertaking the task in a proportionate or constructive manner. The role of personal representative is fiduciary in its nature and requires the individual appointed to act for the benefit of the estate as a whole. Having regard to the manner in which Philip has conducted these proceedings, both before the registrar and before me, I have no confidence that Philip would be able to take on this role. The number and nature of the complaints raised by Philip, both in relation to the substantive issue of Stephen's appointment and the manner in which the registrar took her decision, have demonstrated to me that Philip, although no doubt a clever man, has no ability to discriminate between the important and the unimportant, the relevant and the irrelevant, or between the good point and the bad. 
Put bluntly, I do not consider that Philip would be able to separate the wood from the trees, and I do not consider it advisable to place him in control of the administration of the estate. As to whether Stephen should administer the estate, the judge stated, The principal advantage of leaving Stephen in place is that this is a relatively modest estate, which may yet need to be divided amongst a relatively large number of beneficiaries. The assets in the estate are limited, consisting of money in a UK bank, a property in Luton, and a further property in St Vincent. And the steps required to realise and collect in the estate are relatively straightforward. Since obtaining the grant, the UK property has been placed for sale and is now under offer, subject to contract. Steps are also being taken to obtain a grant in St Vincent. Finally, there was the question of whether to appoint a professional. The judge stated, The advantage of a professional administrator is that it takes the administration of the estate out of the hands of any one branch of the family. That the class of beneficiaries potentially entitled to a share of the deceased estate is not confined to Philip and Stephen, but may also extend to those individuals claiming to be children of Eric or of the deceased, is, in my view, a relevant factor. Considering those three options and the evidence that he had before him, the judge concluded, Taking all matters into account, I have concluded that in the interests of the estate and the beneficiaries as a whole, this is a case in which special circumstances make it necessary and expedient to pass over the claims of both Stephen and Philip and to appoint an independent professional. So there we go. An interesting matter outside of the usual scope of a will writer, but very much connected to some of the issues that families can face. As I'm sure you'll agree, it highlights the fact that when testators are considering who to appoint as executors, it isn't necessarily just a matter of appointing the closest relatives. Some thought should be given to how well those individuals actually get along with each other and any vested interests that they might have. The choice of appointing a professional or even just another person that is relatively independent of the main beneficiaries can separate the tasks away from those that already have emotional and financial ties. It's interesting too to observe the manner in which the courts will approach such situations and the logic that they will apply to achieve the right outcome. And to observe what evidence is required and the weight that is given to different types of evidence when a judgment is being made. If you observe the reasons given by the judge as to why he didn't appoint Philip, it was a decision based on practical reasons given his observed conduct. You can see then that when you're taking instructions from a client, that the attendance notes, including your own observations, not just, in other words, the answers to questions on a fact find or instruction forms, but the surrounding information, your observations of the client and their nature, their character, their behaviour, that could be very significant in the event of a trial. That pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. As always, I hope that you have found it useful. I wish you all the very best until the next episode and... Thank you for listening.